You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Phyllis Kanke, the Mary Woodward Lasker Professor of Health Sciences in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, May 5th. I've been working in Africa, um, primarily Nigeria, but also Tanzania and Botswana on HIV uh, for many years trying to roll out the uh, treatment programs there. And then of course, had to deal with a variety of emerging and re-emerging infections that would crop up in West Africa. We have Lhasa in uh, 2014, we had Ebola. And uh, because of the uh, outbreak of Zika in, in the Americas, I started studies to work on Zika virus there. So. Uh, I spend a lot of time in Nigeria, maybe eight or nine trips uh, a year. So this is a new normal for me to have to work from my computer screen um, and try to manage our projects that are ongoing there. Um, Nigeria has been locked down for, uh, partially locked down for about five weeks and, and some very serious lockdowns in some of the big urban centers like Lagos and uh, Abuja and a couple of other places that had lots of cases. Um, and they're just coming out of that um, with the recognition that they couldn't stay locked down, but they were just trying to limit the amount of transmission. They've got pretty robust contact tracing, which uh, they know how to do. They did very well in the Ebola outbreak. They only had 20 cases uh, and people were really concerned that a population like Nigeria, about 190 million, uh, would really blow up with um, one of these uh, readily transmissible viruses. So there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of government engagement. Um, I'm also working with the Africa CDC, which is part of the Africa African Union based in, in Addis, and they're trying to coordinate the uh, Africa response with 54 member states. Um, they have lots of guidance, uh, different working groups dealing with testing or um, messaging. They have lots of uh, brochures and educational tools, and they're well-coordinated with um, the, the WHO uh, and do regular reporting. So they've really taken on an important leadership role. They've uh, done this in the past with things like Ebola and, and were very in, important in the DRC's recent outbreak that has just sort of petered out recently. Um, but they'll, they'll take on a very important role uh, for the COVID outbreak in, on the continent. Um, they're coordinating some massive contributions that uh, initially came in from um, Jack Ma, who has provided a million tests um, for the 54 member states um, and a lot of uh, personal protective equipment, uh, swabs, extraction kits, gloves, masks. Um, so, they they were sort of jump started in that response, and I think that really helped. Um, but it's not easy to get everything to all the states. All of the states are in sort of different phases of the pandemic. Uh, but South Africa, Algeria, Nigeria have uh, some of the larger numbers in the four or five thousands, um, 
and then there's some countries that still have very small numbers, but uh, they're really limited in the amount of testing they can do. So I guess I'll stop there. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Kanke. Uh, first question. Uh, hi, Dr. Kanke. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, your assessment of the progress of the COVID pandemic in Africa. I've heard a couple of different theories about why um, the numbers are relatively low from uh, a lack of testing to uh, demographics with a large uh, young population. Um, and I wonder if you could just sort of uh, give us your sense of where you think uh, the African nations are in the, in the course of this pandemic. Um, well, yeah, I have also, uh, obviously the amount of testing is going to be uh, important. I also think that um, the population structure being um, a larger proportion of young folks uh, might make the transmission uh, slightly different. And um, there are a lot of other um, health concerns and probably differences uh, in uh, cultural differences in what we call health-seeking behavior, uh, what people consider to be uh, something that they need to go to the doctor for or go to a hospital. Um, remember, these are places that have uh, significant endemic diseases. Uh, people regularly have malaria. Um, there'll be flu in some parts of the continent. Uh, and uh, respiratory illnesses like flu, though, are, are probably not what we see uh, in the West, where you see it um, in, in, in the winter seasons because Africa doesn't have that. So there, there are a lot of different environmental and um, sociological differences in these populations that may make the epidemiology of the outbreak uh, different. I mean, people wondered why there were not more cases uh, because there was, there was so much international travel going in and out of the, the continent. And what we did, in fact, see um, was not so much transmission from, from Asia, but, but from Europe and, and even the, the US. Those were some of the reported first cases that people have seen. And then uh, a pretty rapid response, I would say, because they had the benefit of seeing what was going on in the rest of the world uh, of contact tracing, they had emergency operations centers called EOCs that were activated. In, in Nigeria, um, you know, in February, you'd say, well, were they ready? The, their EOC was already activated because they're tracking cholera and loss of fever. So you don't have to, you're already activated. You already have states around the country, there's 36 states, that are reporting these diseases. And, and that's a real uh, uh, jump start. Uh, you may not have all of the tests, but they had testing centers with kits uh, you know, in February, not a lot. They had four, now they have 20. Um, and they've ramped up their testing to the extent that they can. Um, it, it certainly will never be like the state of Massachusetts, but um, they'll have to do with, with what they can. And I, I think um, 
they're showing a lot of resilience and, and patience in trying to get there. You are, are you anticipating um, you know, a coming surge like we've seen in other places, or do you feel that it's kind of being managed? I mean, are, are you looking forward to a peak, or are we on a plateau? A any sense of that? I think um, some, some countries will probably see something like a surge. Uh, and the countries I would worry about would be something like South Africa or, or even Nigeria that have, you know, 5,000 cases. There's still uh, countries that have very limited uh, amounts. And, and if they're able to really um, identify those cases and isolate them, they should be able to, to limit it so that it will be you know, like some of the states we have here in the U.S. where they have very few cases and it looks like with border control and um, public health measures, they're going to be able to maintain that status. Um, yeah. Very good. Thank you. Um, next question. I wanted to um, see, and I think the previous questioners touched on this a bit, what is the role of how can we call it literacy around epidemics, epidemiological literacy among populations in Africa, populations that know what the impact of an epidemic is, that have either suffered cholera or have dealt with various kinds of epidemics um, in the past. I mean, yesterday, for example, I was looking at the paper and I see a bunch of people in Central Park hanging out one next to another as though what's happening in New York isn't happening to them. Um, do we find that these countries can teach Americans a bit as to the importance of having community understandings as to the gravity of these diseases? Yeah, that's an, that's an excellent point because um, I do think that uh, many African nations, uh, as I was trying to allude to, are sort of dealing with outbreaks on a regular basis. And so their, their literacy is quite high. Um, and um, in general, I would say they're fairly uh, responsive to uh, public health measures. Um, obviously, you have problems like in the DRC where you had an Ebola outbreak, uh, but you still had uh, military that were attacking the healthcare facilities and creating a situation where patients were afraid to go uh, to be uh, tested and treated. So uh, there are exceptions, of course, but I would say overall, because um, many of these countries are regularly experiencing outbreaks and understand the consequences, um, HIV, of course, is is another example. It, it's a for a different kind of disease, but the whole continent was overwhelmed uh, with people who were dying of a, a of a very uh, dangerous viral disease. So, I think that that history uh, has has taught the uh, those people quite a bit about how to respond. And I think their their uh, healthcare system, while it may not be as sophisticated uh, and um, as, as the West, they do uh, sit on a pretty firm foundation of public health, which serves them well because they have limited resources. 
just as a as a follow up to that i mean it it seems fairly obvious that most african countries can't follow say the chinese model where you're going to have zero transmissions nor can they really follow the european or american model where you can really ramp up your health systems to the point where you can survive this wave or the next waves but but it does strike me that there's a potential for protecting vulnerable populations um is that the way to go if not what other strategies are available um with countries that have these limited resources well i i think um early responses and the easy responses that they can do early are are important so you know they started in February and March to put hand washing stations in these rural areas, for instance, because they didn't feel that there was adequate hand washing. And they've started in urban centers very early to have um, basically lockdowns, uh, which they will ease back and then they'll roll through in, in other places. So it's those are things that they can do. It's a sacrifice for the folks that have to be locked down because many of them are on, you know, hand to mouth. So they're they're going without, but they won't be able to maintain a lockdown uh, situation immediately. They close borders uh, very quickly, uh, and they're setting up uh, big isolation areas, much as what was done in in convention centers and things like that in Europe and the US. So they will uh, begin to isolate. Um, my experience with, with them during the Ebola outbreak, you know, they had one case that came in from Liberia that, that spread on to be 20 cases. They locked down that transmission in the one hospital where the initial patient was seen. Um, his personal assistant moved it to Port Harcourt, but it, it was basically uh, lockdown in Lagos. And what was important there was that they actually did about 900 contact tracings and a huge amount of education in the community to avoid stigma, et cetera. So they, they were able to mobilize quite a bit over 20 cases. And, and I'm really not sure that could have been done so readily even in a place like Boston. Wow, that just last follow-up, I'm sorry. We're looking at several models of transmission uh, in the United States and Europe. Of course, there's the 1918 model in which you have a first wave and then a huge second wave that comes later. What kind of, what kind of modeling has been done um, for Africa and what's the model that you think is most likely to take place over the next year or so? Um, I think it's going to be different for different countries based on how many cases come in and if those uh, numbers can be maintained for long periods of time. Uh, in, in some of the uh, harder hit countries, you'll probably see some of these recurring waves, which is uh, what people uh, saw in the Spanish flu. But um, it, we really can't say, and I don't, I haven't seen a lot about modeling in Africa. I've, I've seen it based on um, 
international air travel, for instance. Um, but I think most of the modeling that I've seen has been um, taking the Asia data and then trying to uh, mirror that over to the US and Europe. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Next question. I have a few questions about the predictions and how reliable, uh, you know, those models that you were talking about, uh, because, you know, we were talking about 30,000 deaths in America, then 60,000, then, you know, 200,000. So how reliable those predictions are and how we can trust the models that, you know, different research groups give us? Um, I don't. I don't think we can, I mean, I personally don't put a lot into models because there's so many assumptions that you have to really get around. And I think frequently the data that supports the models just isn't there. So I would be very hesitant to take model data that was based on one setting and then just refer it over. What we can use models for is, in interpreting what we're beginning to understand about this new virus. So um, how much asymptomatic infection there is. It appears um, that there's quite a bit. Um, and that asymptomatic infection uh, basically will provide a little bit of a, a buffer or a protection to the population. So you won't uh, overtax your healthcare system and you'll have, you know, two in three or three in five uh, of all cases uh, be exposed and, and perhaps partially protected, uh, but they no longer uh, become the susceptible. I think the, the thing that I worry about because I come from a background of, of HIV is that you have huge numbers of people who uh, have another disease. Uh, they're being treated for it, but they may not always be taking their pills. So they're basically a little bit potentially immunosuppressed. That's not good. Uh, that might counteract the fact that you have more young people uh, that might be a little less susceptible to infection. So there's a lot of differences uh, about the continent uh, that, and, and uh, in addition, um, what I mentioned early on is the differences that they have in, quote, health-seeking behavior. I think they may not go to hospitals as, as often, uh, but they may be willing to uh, social distance, wear a mask, um, wash their hands, because it's the only thing that they can do. I, I think those of us in the West don't uh, frequently feel inconvenience because you might have to put on a mask when you go to a grocery store. I, I don't think that would be the overwhelming attitude in, in some of these uh, developing countries. They're, they're willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And my follow-up question is, uh, in, for right now, what is the most realistic model for the U.S., in your opinion? In terms of where you think... Uh, the yeah, the curve, like how it will develop and when we see, you know, I saw a lot of different graphics and they're all different, you know, in terms of the ending date or where the peak is. So what is the, your prediction, basically? 
Well, I think you've seen some parts of the country, uh, Washington State and California, that look like they're they're over their peak. Um, uh, New York is getting there also, maybe Massachusetts and New Jersey, um, but they've had huge numbers. There are other parts of the country that uh, you haven't seen a peak, and to the extent that that's supported with lots of testing, um, they may stay that way. If it's because they haven't been testing enough, they're in danger, I would say, of having uh, a peak, but just one that's poorly recognized, and that would be dangerous. The problem is that, uh, you know, I'm in Massachusetts and I can drive 45 minutes and be in Maine and New Hampshire. So, uh, and many people, you know, work in another state. Uh, so, so you do have to wonder, well, what, what's going to happen if my state is basically over with our peak, uh, but another state is just beginning mm -hmm. and you could have rolling peaks, uh, which would mean that the country as a whole is just going to be up and down. It'll be Spanish flus going uh, throughout the, the, the nation. And that would be a pretty frightening thought. Well, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. uh, next question. Uh, thank you so much for doing this, Dr. Kenke. Uh, last year, there was uh, some good news about the treatment of Ebola when scientists found that um, a couple of antibody drugs seemed to be effective against the virus. Um, I was wondering what you think of the efforts to develop antibody drugs for coronavirus. Some people are saying that they uh, may offer the best hope for treatment while we wait for a vaccine. Um, yes, there's been a lot of uh, research on antibodies and it does appear that uh, that's another approach that, that um, the research field will take up um, and those are already in the works. Uh, we also already have a drug that's gotten an emergency clearance that, that acts on the virus itself, remdesivir. Um, I think the thought is that you might need to have a combination of therapies, uh, some that would act in different ways, sort of like what you use with cancer therapy, um, and, and that might be useful. I think antibodies in general uh, have been uh, very effective at bringing virus down. Um, if you had high burden of infection and bringing that, that level down, but it may not be prolonged. Um, and there will be limitations to how much you can give and how long. Uh, one of the issues with the use of antibodies for Ebola is that you'd have to continuously give an uh, intravenous therapeutic and, and that can't be done. And you can also drive the virus into a reservoir, for instance. So the, the idea is that it would be better if you had multiple types of ther therapies that uh, would would try to basically cure the person. Mm -hmm. So antibody drugs might just be part of, um, you know, I, I guess a bigger toolkit or, or, or treatment approaches. Yeah, I think that's the conventional wisdom. Yeah, and and as you've probably seen, cases come in uh, some with you know 
no symptoms, some with very severe acute symptoms, and you'd have to tailor those therapies based on what you think is going on. If you have an assay where you can determine how much virus is there, you might say, oh, let's use an antibody um, here uh, and, and remdesivir or something else. And um, then as the patient starts to get better, you may have to be dealing with other parts of that viral infection. Once the virus gets in there and you have you know, a, a cytokine response, you might have to do something to, to deal with that response, which is almost indirectly a result of the viral infection. Thank you so much. Um, I, I just wanted to have a quick question. Um, as a virologist, is there anything that stands out to you about this particular coronavirus, or is it very similar to other coronaviruses and it's just how it's affecting the body is a little bit different? Is there, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, in the last month or so, I've done a lot of reading about coronaviruses and, uh, you know, it's a, a huge range of, characteristics of these viruses and their infections in, in animals and people. Um, it's pretty frightening because it's um, a, a virus that's able to mutate um, a little bit like flu and a little bit like HIV. Uh, and it's also able to move from one host to another pretty readily. And we've seen that with the original SARS virus in uh, 2003 and the MERS virus uh, 10 years later. I think the lesson I take from that as a virologist is that um, there are these viral infections, not just coronaviruses, but, but there's a huge number of coronaviruses sitting there um, percolating along in different animal species uh, with known mechanisms of being able to spill over into humans. And that is the whole um, area that virologists think about in terms of re-emerging and emerging infections. Um, we're changing our environment and our access to some of these uh, animal species more readily because we're destroying their habitat, for instance, or because uh, we're eating them and keeping them in a live market or whatever, but even domestic animals could serve as an intermediate host for something like a coronavirus, and then you would have uh, an outbreak. And, and these outbreaks, of course, the ones we think about are the, the human ones, but we've had coronavirus outbreaks that have had devastating effects for the pork industry, where you had huge numbers of pigs that were being killed by what appeared to be a spillover um, virus from bats into the pigs and, and created basically an outbreak in in the pigs. And I have one more question that I've been getting sometimes um, with various frequency in my inbox, and that is um, mutations and how viruses mutate. And could you kind of put into perspective uh, what a virus mutation can mean that uh, basically all viruses mutate and that it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, it's just that's what viruses do. Could you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> uh, they all 
can mutate, uh, but some do it better than others. Uh, and it's just uh, the nature of, their, of how they replicate. So these uh, coronaviruses have an enzyme that reads their genetic material and creates another copy so that the virus um, will live on. And sometimes there's, um, in, in that replication cycle, you can have the enzyme fail to read correctly, and then you result in, in a mutation. And so if you track this, you can see that uh, in any given cycle, you'll have so many mutations. Now, that sounds bad, but it might not have a big effect because the virus, you can mutate um, a nucleic acid residue that won't have any impact, right? And you, the virus is going to want to survive. So the only thing that survives is what would actually allows the virus to replicate on. So there are measures by which that mutation doesn't have impact, but you can also have a mutation that can say, um, change the ability of the virus to, to transmit a little better. So say you have the portion of the virus that contacts the receptor on the human cell. If you mutate that, uh, you can either uh, disallow the virus from getting in, or you can make it get in better. Uh, and unfortunately, all those possibilities are, are there, correct? Um, and so I think that's one of the things that we, we worry about when we're studying these viruses is to recognize um, the tremendous potential these viruses have for doing things differently. Uh, in the retrovirus family, which is where HIV is, um, there are a whole set of viruses that cause cancers uh, in different animals. And one amino acid change, so that could be one nucleic acid residue difference, can change the kind of cancer that that virus can can cause. So, so uh, I guess it, it creates a certain um, anxiety uh, as we sit here as a potential host to a virus infection. That there's a lot of potential out there, and that's why there's uh, been so much work, uh, One Health is another um, organization that's concerned with the interface between animals and humans because there are so many viruses uh, that humans get that they get from animals. Great, thank you. Uh, next question. So I would like to ask um, a retrospective question. So uh, as you know, uh, in the wake of the 2003 um, SARS uh, outbreak in China, some pharmaceutical companies try to develop both antibodies and uh, and vaccine against uh, this uh, SARS. Let's call it uh, the SARS-CoV-1 as opposed to the SARS-CoV-2, which is the one we are facing now. Uh, so some pharmaceutical companies we do I got in touch. They said that uh, they were trying to develop uh, a vaccine that uh, uh, targeted the the portion of the SARS-like family viruses, coronaviruses, which is common to all. Uh, coronaviruses belonging to this family, so that uh, the immune system would recognize it. Uh, this a common portion, and uh, basically uh, deactivate the virus, uh, uh, no matter of the mutations 
uh, and so the variables of, of the of the coronaviruses. And uh, they said that uh, in, eventually they didn't uh, develop further their uh, research because, uh, as you know, the the, the outbreak in 2002 then uh, uh, finished. So there were no more infected people, even on whom they could have tested the, the effect, effectiveness of this vaccine. But I was just wondering if, if a vaccine like that, that was really targeting the common portion of all uh, SARS-like family coronaviruses were developed back then in the past, would it be much easier now to, to face this pandemic, maybe using this virus at the, the start and then trying to upgrade it, uh, upgrade it into, into a better virus, which is better suitable for uh, this uh, new virus, uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, that I, I'm not familiar with that um, vaccine candidate, but um, it, it certainly sounds like a great approach, and uh, it's probably one that that people are are looking at again. I I think unfortunately, um, in many cases, what happens after an outbreak goes away and there's no longer interest and there's no longer cost benefit for uh, a vaccine company, uh, the concept is dropped uh, and and it doesn't go anywhere. We, we do know that if it was uh, a vaccine that was specific to say COVID-1, it's likely that that vaccine would not protect for COVID-2 and the same thing is true with mirrors. But the idea of having a quote pan uh, coronavirus uh, vaccine is is certainly a good one and something I think people ha have thought about uh, if they haven't actually gotten it going now and there's you know probably 50 candidates that are out there that that people are pursuing and companies are pursuing and trying to get into trials and get into people you may end up having more of a situation like you have with flu which is that you have to design a vaccine every year um, because the strain that's infecting the populations is slightly different. And last year's vaccine will not protect from this year. It gives you some protection, but. Okay, well, just to follow a question. So let's say that uh, in one year, two years, uh, hopefully uh, this uh, new coronavirus uh, goes away. Then uh, uh, if we, I mean, if uh, we, keep using the same market-oriented mechanism. We cannot be sure that uh, pharmaceutical companies will, will have enough of, his, of an incentive to, to sustain their research in a way that uh, basically they can develop a new version of, uh, of the vaccine as they do with the, with the seasonal, seasonal flu, so that uh, we have uh, a vaccine always ahead of an outbreak and not uh, amid the, the outbreak or even after it. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I just think that generally the the way pharmaceutical companies and therapeutic companies operate is they they have to follow the bottom line and so if they find that uh, something is going being prepared is not re really in their business model if you know what I mean um, but I do think that um, this pandemic is going to change the way people think about things uh, again. And, and perhaps there'll be a bigger push to, to not have uh, 
such a short attention span about things just because they seem to have gone away now after one or two years. I mean, I, I know that uh, after the Ebola outbreak, um, and I was working on it in the aftermath of it uh, in Africa, um, the funding opportunities for me to get research funds for Ebola went away. Um, and they basically were switched over and um, they had to use those funds to fund uh, the research that was ramping up for Zika. And um, I think now those funds have gone away as well. So, so there's a short attention span and, and that's uh, unfortunate. So it's the chicken egg uh, paradox. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Uh, next question. You another question, if you don't mind. Um, you were speaking earlier about um, immunity and issues around immunity. How much, um, uh, how much immunity you have? How long do you have? Could you talk to us a little bit about how that plays into any discussions slash debates um, around herd immunity? What constitutes herd immunity? Um, and uh, etc. Um, sure. So the the basic idea of of herd immunity is that you have a sufficient um, proportion of the population that has experienced the disease and has immunity. It's generally thought of that that immunity is in the form of antibodies, but it could be um, cellular immunity, and so that the, the uh, pathogen entering that population just hits, you know, five times out of 10 or six times out of 10, it, it is confronted with someone who's immune and it can't enter the population. So those immune folks are protecting the smaller proportion generally of the population that have never seen the uh, pathogen. So that's the concept of it. What we don't know about uh, COVID, uh, the, the COVID virus is how long after, say you've been infected and you've survived the disease, how long does the, those antibody responses and T cell responses, how long do they last and do they protect? And there's unfortunately very little information about that. You could also say, well, what if I was one of the lucky people who was exposed, I had asymptomatic infection, am I immune? Uh, we also don't know that. Uh, we do know that those people uh, probably have antibody responses maybe two days after they were exposed, um, not great data about that, uh, but we don't know if those antibodies in a test tube will neutralize virus. That's what you want to know. Um, and we don't know, for instance, will you be, uh, will you have that protection for, you know, more than a few weeks or a few months? So, and all of those parameters are important to sort of calculating the concept of herd immunity. Um, Ideally, you would be in a situation where you have the infection or you have the vaccine and you have lifelong immunity. 
and that would protect you and it would help to protect those around you that that did not have it but we don't know that yet about this virus and that's partially because the test that's used to diagnose uh, COVID is based on the virus nucleic acid and so it's not based on your immune response. And so we have little data, and as you probably know, there was the rollout of these antibody tests, but it was very late. Uh, and so we don't have good studies to say um, a patient who was exposed in a nursing home 10 days later, how many people in that nursing home have antibodies? And one month later, how many of those people have antibodies? And importantly, how many of those healthcare workers have it? We don't know anything. Okay. And, and, um, and that's really unfortunate. And in terms of populations, why is it that children seem to have a better response? I mean, in, in measles and other cases, we see under fives are usually a vulnerable population. In this case, it isn't so much. And why is it that women seem to be responding better than men? Um, good questions. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, the, the age issue is an interesting one. We don't know whether uh, kids are exposed and just have an, an infected and then have an, a milder course, or if they're less susceptible. And those are just two different things, right? Uh, what what we're seeing right now is that um, men and older men or older populations seem to have a more severe disease. But we're really looking at sort of the tip of the iceberg because we're only looking at sick people. Um, and we don't know how many people are infected. Uh, is it, you know, 100% of all kids that are exposed are they protected or 50% of them are protected or do they get the infection but have a very mild course and so they're never detected? And mm. we just don't know that, right? Okay, okay. And with regard to women and men, is there any, are there any theories around that? Um, no, I haven't heard much except that it, you, you probably in the analysis of the data have to really, um, look at do you have the same number of men and women with pre-existing uh, conditions like hype, you know, uncontrolled hypertension or diabetes or uh, asthma or whatever. Uh, so those, you have to say you have an equal number of that in both sexes and then determine, then, then you'll see that the gender is an independent associated factor. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. All right, does anybody else have a question? Um, yeah, following up the, the question uh, by Gregory, um, uh, you said that uh, uh, it's, it will be difficult or even impossible to, to find out how many, how many people in the nursing home uh, have uh, antibody uh, uh, following uh, a, um, a contagion from one of the members of the nursing home. I don't know if I really got it right. But uh, it wouldn't be possible to know, to know that through uh, doing um, um, ser ser serological, serological uh, tests? 
Yes, and they're starting to do those now um, here in Massachusetts. They're, they're starting to do, you know, the complete array of tests in these closed facilities that seem to be such high risk. Um, and, and they're also starting to do that in healthcare workers, which uh, is something that I think will be important for us to do all over the world uh, because healthcare workers are, are really um, have a higher risk of, of exposure. Yeah, ask you the question because in Italy uh, they, they estimate that uh, at least uh, 10,000 uh, uh, elder they, they died in nursing home because they, they were denied access to uh, intensive care due to the fact that uh, hospitals were overwhelmed. So of course they, they try to, uh, to help uh, to save the youngest and the most healthy. And so people in nursing home, they were left alone. And now they, 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 they are trying to, uh, yeah, to try to raise some funding to provide uh, home care uh, to this nursing home. So we feel that uh, it's essential actually to try to do serological tests in nursing home to prevent further death. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, these, it's, a, it's a really heartbreaking what's happening in some of these, uh, these healthcare facilities that people have. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, looks like that was our last question. Dr. Kenke, do you have any other final words before we end the call for today? No, I think we had some great questions and a good discussion, so thanks very much. This concludes the May 5th press conference.